excited to talk about organizational culture with you beautiful people. Um, but before we jump in, please let me welcome you both. So uh, please let me welcome Karen John Madsen, uh, Principal of Co-Design of Work Experience, author of Culture Your Culture, Innovative Experiences at Work. Karen is an advisor, a consultant, a coach, an author, speaker, and an educator, and is known to be a versatile leader across multiple industries with experience leading in implementing organizational cultures, initiatives around the globe. So welcome, Karen. It's nice to have you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And then, of course, <laughs> of course, uh, we've been just talking up a storm beforehand, so it's kind of an odd one that we're going back and kind of introducing ourselves when we, we've been already having a time. So, <laughs> But uh, I would also like to welcome Evan Hanover. He is the research director at Conifer Research in Chicago, Illinois. And with a master's of anthropology and an expert in consumer research, Evan is known to explore human behavior holistically and at an eye level. I am Sharday Torgerson, the creative and digital strategist here at Incitrix Research in Saskatoon, Canada, and your season three host of the Stories and Market Research, the Incitrix podcast. Now, listen, this topic is fully loaded and fully baked for our listeners, and I literally cannot wait to dive in. But I think before we get too deep into it, I want to talk a little bit about organizational culture. Now, I think the whole uh, term is kind of fun to throw around in a room of people and attempt to get everyone to kind of agree what exactly culture, workplace culture, organizational culture, corporate culture, what have you it is. Now, I'm going to leave this open for discussion for everyone, but I'm curious, what are we talking about when we're talking about work culture? And really what we're talking about is when we're talking about the realness behind everything is done in business. So, you know, what are we meaning when we say workplace culture is real? Uh, well, Chardet, thanks for having us. Um, you've asked a question that has been plaguing my discipline, anthropology, um, for, well, since its inception. Um, I, I don't think there is a single agreed upon uh, definition of what culture is. And I don't get too hung up on that. But I think there is a lot to be learned and a lot of benefit to be had by going beyond simply saying we're an innovative culture, we're a, we're a startup culture, we're an entrepreneurial culture. I think what culture is, is all of the background um, practices, values, uh, traditions, language that exists within an organization that kind of shape people's interactions, shape their expectations, help shape their collaboration, um, help shape the way they see the, um, their future and their trajectories within a given workplace. And the reason I love doing organizational culture work is that organizational cultures are fully realized. There are little rites and rituals that, that go on, whether it's simply, uh, I don't know, a Friday afternoon happy hour to help bond people, um, the daily gossip by the coffee machine, the, the proverbial water cooler. Um, but there are interaction types. Um, there is the formal like office meeting interaction. There's the, the all hands meeting interaction. There are the informal interactions that go on in the hallway or more, more likely now on Slack or, or Zoom, stuff like that. There is language and jargon that marks people as longstanding members of a company. Uh, and, and newbies or outsiders. Um, there are the espoused values. There are how those values are um, 
actually play out on the ground. Um, like I said, there's those life trajectories, there's sort of statuses and, and, and political relationships. And, and so all of the things you find outside of uh, a, an in-person or virtual corporate office, like out in the world, when we think about culture, all exist within uh, companies. And all of that goes to affect how people perform, stay engaged, um, stay employed at a given company. So, which we will get into, I have a feeling, quite a bit. Now let's hear Karen's totally different definition. No, it's not totally different. I, I, I'm curious. Well, you know, I, I think Evan, no, it's not completely different. We just have, um, you know, our ways of defining it. And, and that's because you're right, Evan, there is no universally accepted definition. And so therefore, when we all do our work and this great idea for you uh, that Charday actually asked us to start here because it's important to state it up front so we know <laughs> what we're talking about, right? Um, so from my perspective, and I'm just going to layer on top of what Evan said, you know, culture is a social construct and it's reflected in all the things that have the power to influence uh, behaviors, interactions, people's perceptions. Um, and it really communicates, you know, what's acceptable and not acceptable, and it shows up in how people behave, interact, react, and perceive reality, right? So it's something that's created, you know, and reinforced and experienced, and this is where I, I really see, uh, I resonate with Evan's definition is the experience of culture. So it's not what people say, it's what really what people do and what they live through. Um, and so, you know, if, if you look at what those social boundaries look like that's therein lies your culture right and so there's a lot of misconceptions about it out there and i could talk all day about it but but i think what's what's really important when we're talking about organizations is that it's either an asset or a liability whether or not you're paying attention to it <laughs> and so that's kind of my soapbox i'm gonna get on that soapbox probably a few times here but that's that's the big thing is that it's not always uh, culture-led in organizations when, in fact, it should be because it's the thing behind everything, in my opinion. Right. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I, yeah. I think there's one more, uh, though there's a lot of more, a lot more aspects to it. But the other thing is it's, it's dynamic. It is like okay. culture, culture is not an artifact. It isn't yeah. frozen in time. And right. um, Karen talked about a, a little bit about how it's, it's, it's lived, it's embodied, it's practiced. And because it's practiced, it is sort of constantly out there and being iterated on in the world. And, and a lot of those, lot of those changes might not be perceptible, but some of them are bigger and you see them when, um, if there is some sort of scandal, uh, companies sort of refocus on culture when there's a leadership change and, so happens when there is a pandemic and people become dispersed because culture is also often um, practiced and embodied and reproduced in a space. And so when that space fundamentally changes, all of the other things fundamentally change, which I think is a lot of what we're going to talk about today um, is understanding that change. But it's important to know that like um, that this is something that is it's alive. It absolutely is. It's yeah. organic. It's evolving. And this is the thing, Evan, I wish people ha didn't have this perception that culture was happening to them. We're all mm -hmm. part of that. 
ecosystem and we're contributing to and engaging with and shaping it through our own scope of influence. So uh, a lot of the work I do is trying to have people feel empowered to be and participate and to lead in the cultures within their organizations rather than saying, oh, gosh, it happened and it's doing this to me. I can't change it. I can't touch it, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Please, please continue on. I, I think that's an interesting point about it. People exteriorizing it and saying it's something that's out there because um, this has happened in every project I've done on organizational culture. And I, I suspect this will resonate with Karen as well, which is that um, people talk about, let's say you're working for, you know, uh, what's the stereotypical Acme company. People will say <laughs> that's the Acme way. I, I think it's very common for people to explain away um, potentially negative behaviors by saying that's the Acme way if they work for, you know, if we're in a wily Coyote organizational culture study, um, <laughs> that people will say this is the Acme way and it's out there, but you're, you, you know, it's not that it's your fault, but you're living the Acme way. You contribute to the Acme way. And I think understanding that it is, um, top down, bottom up, left to right, right to left is, is really is really important for not only understanding it, but then trying to figure out like how do you how do you harness it and change it in a positive way. Yeah. I like that. I, I if I if I may, I think we're talking about two uh, almost like workplace culture needs to happen from the background and into the forefront. So, I mean, let's continue to roll on that. So workplace culture really needs to happen from the background to the forefront, right? So what does that look like when businesses are really implementing something like that? I mean, even on a high level, surface level, you know, perfect world. Um, or what does it look like when businesses aren't, um, you know, uh, contributing their organizational culture from the background to the forefront? Um I think one of the things that you need to do is is recognize um, that the background isn't always articulatable, right? You can't always explain culture. We already talked about how we couldn't really define it that well. I mean, I think we were able to identify a lot of the markers that work together, um, but explaining how the whole works is, is in any concise way is is a, a long and actually probably at the end of the day a pretty tedious podcast um but but i think you need to understand that like okay there are all these things that that shape the way like karen said you develop a sense that this is the right or the wrong way to do something the acceptable and the unacceptable way um the way that is understood and is kind of like um legible to the organization and ways that aren't um, so there may be a kind of way of creating a deliverable. And if the organization has a, has, has a particular way of saying like, this is how knowledge is produced inside of our organization. This is how we use it. This is how we digest it. That is, that is a cultural practice fundamentally. And even if it ends up being delivered in a different form, people may still understand it, but it is not ultimately valued in the same way. Um, I can, yeah. so I'm going to drift off into a, a little bit of my anthropological background. And I, and what I have a, some thoughts on that too, so. Uh, um, <laughs> do, do you want to jump or should I? Uh, no, um, finish your thought. I don't want you to lose it. Um, 
One of my favorite articles, which I which I give a lot of my young anthropologists who get hired at Conifer to read, is by a woman named Carol Cohn, uh, C-O-H-N, who I believe was a sociologist. And I could get you a link to the specific article, but it's something along the lines of uh, sex and death among defense intellectuals. And so in the 1980s, she was part of a program where social scientists were able to study to able to embed, I believe, at the Department of the Defense at the Pentagon. And she was listening, and this is the Cold War, and people are talking about all these war game scenarios. And she would try to engage the folks in discussions about the war game scenarios, which, you know, it's nuclear war, everybody dies, but yet somebody still wins. It didn't make any moral or logical sense. And she was largely ignored. And her gut reaction, which was not a bad gut reaction, was like, I'm in a, I, I'm, I'm in a world, I've entered a world of older men, and they don't want to listen to a woman engage in this. Then she, she was like, let me try this. Let me start speaking in their jargon. <laughs> and it was the jargon itself. It was the accepted cultural practice of speaking in a particular register, a particular jargon that allowed her to become part of those conversations. Um, and what it does is it, it's, it's an example of how um, sometimes you need to clothe certain interactions in the, the language or the symbols of a place in order for those things to make sense within the place. It's not like the people didn't understand what she was talking about, but the the culture there necessitated that she talk in a certain way. Now there's more to it because there was an internal logic to that jargon, which allowed you to talk about uh, enormous casualties and still somehow win a war. But I think the, the point for us, because we're not uh, gaming out nuclear holocausts, is that, is that, <laughs> there are really salient aspects of a culture which you need to understand in order to work effectively within them. Yes. And so, Evan, what you're pointing out is the importance of context and how that's unique <clears throat> to every single individual organization, even if they're in the same business, the same industry, because every one of our organizations are made up of a unique combination of people. Now, therein lies the problem. I'm in the field that I'm in, there's so many interventions that are so-called best practices where we take the same things and then people expect it to function the same way. So all the work that I do in organizations are customized to the context. And that means including a deep understanding of the culture in which everything is happening. So Evan, I, I agree with you that you're, you're describing the challenges very accurately, but that's why my work exists, right? I'm here <laughs> to make culture overt. Um, intentional and continually leveraged because like I said it's either working for or against people and their organizations today and so to go back to your question Sharda is how does this show up um, you can have the best processes the best strategies the best goals all the capital in the world you're not going to achieve your full potential if you don't have the people part down and guess what culture is a part of that right and we're seeing that so many examples of why culture has not served an organization in the news headlines, right? I don't want to out any particular ones because they happen every week, honestly. Like if we yeah, listen yeah. to all yeah. so there's a lot of examples out there of of where it's gone awry. And, and to Evan's point earlier as well, is it changes. So a, a company can't declare victory when they see 
oh, well, we have evidence that we have a great culture. Okay, now we can pack up and go home because, <laughs> um, and I said this earlier in the conversation, a coaching conversation today, it's relationships are like plants. If you don't water them, they'll die, right? So I heard that from a, a professor at UCSF. And it was, a, a, I think it was a neuroscientist or, or a neurosurgeon that said that about how, I mean, he's examining, you know, the brain and our interactions from a totally different angle. But I, that analogy really stuck out to me because people don't realize mm -hmm. that in organizations, your culture describes the relationship you have with your people uh, like on a large, large scale, right? And when we talk about culture yep. change, it's got to create enough depth and breadth in order to be sustainable, okay? So that means happening it has to be happening at the individual, the team, and the organizational level. So I hope that answers your question, Sade, but how does it show up, you know, in the business? If a company is culture-led like they are any other business asset, uh, they're yep. going to have their ducks in a row, but most organizations do not. And there's research that says we know our culture sucks and we know it's because we underinvested in it. So we know <laughs> we know the problems there. And still, we all know the answers on what to do. And still, the issue is an execution, right? So there we go. And I feel maybe the pandemic might have played an interesting role in even some of the culture shift that, that's happening today. And it's not to say that cultural shift hasn't been happening for many years within business. Uh, but I mean, come on, who predicted such an event in our lifetime? Um, I'm even thinking within our own respective organizations, so I'll, like I just, even with you guys talking, I'm going within my own, you know, unique personal experience when it comes to dealing with a shift in culture. And, and that shift really does seem like it's on the forefront front. You know, the whole nine to five work schedule is a whole lot less relevant uh, than ever it's ever felt. Um, we were even talking about it earlier, things like you you have co-location mm -hmm. environments, you have people remote working, uh, the hybrid work, a mash of companies are doing all these different things, but no one is really figuring it out, or they are, and maybe not sharing it to some degree. But I, I'm curious uh, what, what you guys think in terms of how maybe the whole concept of people work is changing and how that too might be affecting workplace culture. Ooh, that's a lot. Um, <laughs> that's the interviewist in me. So well, I mean, if I could just jump in, um, I think we need to move from tactics to um, just a holistic integrated strategy. All right. So a lot of this, I'm all for experimenting. I'm all for iteration. I'm not saying no to that. That's all part of learning agility, right? So I want organizations yeah. to um, kind of refocus themselves around people and learning um, and co-creation, quite frankly, because this is about uh, creating the new employee experience of the future. And you can't just uh, legislate that, whatever you want to call it, mm -hmm. uh, from, from, the, from the ivory tower of leadership. And so I, I think it's, you see a lot of implementing tactics, Oh, they do that. Okay, we'll try that. Or let's try this. Oh, we changed our mind. Or so-and-so said that. Oh, I saw this somewhere else. And and it's all disjointed. And that's and because it's disjointed, guess what? That's what employees are experiencing as well, right? So, uh, again, yeah. all these are reasons why I'm like, uh, I really, I can help you people <laughs> if you just wanted to look at it a little bit differently. Yeah, I, I, think, I think the first step in all of this, and... and in some ways, this is obvious because it's the first step in research, is humility. I think 
It is. We are so we are so future focused. What whatever you want to call it. What is the new normal going to be like? I hate the new normal, but um, what is a post pandemic world going to be look like? What is you know what are the twenty twenties and twenty thirties going to look like? But I think the first thing to do is is to say I don't know, <laughs> like because because you don't, and as soon as you exhibit, and this is really important for leadership because if leadership ex- exhibits and um, espouses and actually like walks the walk of humility, they're all of a sudden open to different answers. They are open to different solutions. They are going to be open to that co-creative process that's that's going to be so critical to effectively readjusting or rebuilding in some places cultures. So so that that's the the first thing. The, the second thing is I think regarding the pandemic, the pandemic has kind of been like, salt it's a flavor enhancer um it's it and by that i mean like it's taken a number of these trends that have been going on and really like kind of made them either pop or flat out just sort of explode pushed the bird out of the tree to see exactly and and some of that some of that hybrid work some of that um you know a, a lot of the the sort of rhetoric and lip service around things like work-life balance, um, which was always, I think, in part a marketing tool rather than an actual lived, breathe thing. Um, uh, some of the the idea of creating a workplace that was much more, if not egalitarian, than co-creative. Um, all, of those, all of those things and all of those demands and, and a lot of the things that we've heard about um, the generational differences between different kinds of workers, all of that has come to come to the fore because everything we knew was thrown into upheaval. And when you know, um, when you have a moment of great and broad disruption, you have reflection. Um, you have you, you talked a little bit about culture being in the background and whether it should be in the foreground. You have a lot of the things that you just assumed were the ways to do work um, pushed to the foreground, like. You know, this is going to be the way they communicate. This is the way we're going to structure our day. This is the kind of dress that is appropriate for a meeting. This is the this is the way that um, like time is structured. All of that stuff was completely disjointed, and now we have all this all this to look at. And I think getting back to the people need to be like like plants need to be watered or they die. I think a big part of that goes back to the idea that culture is practice um, and that you can't just, um, as Karen mentioned, you can't just, you know, lean out of the tower of leadership and say like, our culture is now this because that's not mm-hmm. a, it's not a credible act. Um, and it's really hard to know what that means. Like when you say, you know, we are about um, we are about equity, and we are about like building a better tomorrow, and we are about this, we are about that. Like, what does that actually mean for us? Um, it means and, nothing if people don't experience. Right. It, it, it is it, it is platitudes, <laughs> and people understand that it's platitudes, and that's and that's a lot of the people work that needs to be done, and which I suspect we're going to talk about in a second, which is like, what is that? What does it mean to involve um, a, a broad spectrum of people in 
understanding and projecting forward like what could our culture be um which is which is a key part of both the work that that karen and i have have done and i think is absolutely essential so what do you want to know about it i, I have so much to say to that today is that okay yes this is why I like, oh, absolutely. absolutely this is why i like talking with evan i mean i think we build upon each other so easily I could sit like this the whole time and really? just listen. And, so. and you're not going to go to yes. half an hour? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm all about yeah. human behaviors. I think that's why I ended yeah. up in the market research industry. She, she's so. going to slip in like a cardboard cutout of herself in front of the camera and then, and then go down to the bar. <laughs> no, I'll just end up grabbing a beer or something around then. Then we'll yeah. add, this will be a you're real conversation. You're welcome to join us so. with a beverage. That's no problem. Um, yeah, but I just wanted to rep- just that. Uh, add on to what Evan said, because there's so so much richness in what he just said. Um, what he's pointing mm-hmm. out is um, what what the pandemic what did was, in fact, it did disrupt. There was a lack of change management behind all of that, right? And so that's kind of where some of the shifting and the reconfiguration is going on. So uh, we're all capable of change. People are capable of change. But what we struggle with, where change fatigue comes from, is from our the, the way we manage change. So it's not that we can't change. It's that when change is managed poorly, that's the problem, right? And so um, you talked earlier about humility. I mean, there are organizations. I'm fi- funny enough. I'm writing a chapter right now on hubris for a book that's coming up. <laughs> and the thing is, humility and hubris. Those are opposites, right? But those can be cultural characteristics as well. So there may be organizations where those become hallmarks or characteristics or um, the, the behind the dynamics within the organizations. And so I've been working uh, with a group, at, you know, and I, I'm gonna, I want to tie this back to market research uh, in the sense that um, I'm posing, I, I don't know if you guys have heard of the story, Three, the three Questions. It was uh, written by Tolstoy originally. It was converted mm-hmm. into a children's book. But the three questions in it are, when is the best time to do things? Who is the important one? And what is the right thing to do? And I'll, I'll give you the punchline here. I'm going to spoil the end of the movie. And that is, It all has to do with the present. So when you talk about constantly looking forward or sometimes looking backwards, depending on the people in the organization, we we fail to pay attention to the present. And that's why the work that I do in culture starts with the baseline of the starting point. So many organizations think, oh, we need culture change. We're going to just start Mm -hmm. implementing. And they don't have it any idea about the complexities, the depth, the priorities, the levers that need to be understood in order to do change management. And so that's why the starting point is effectively doing this employee research, which in in your world, it's market research. We're just turning the lens internal to the employees as the consumers or the users, right? And and understanding not only the strengths but the unmet needs within the organizations in priority order with the criteria behind all that stuff never hardly ever gets done as a, a first step when it comes to organizational and cultural change. So this is where this work, the skill set, the anthropologist uh, skill set that Evan, of course, is the expert in, um, it comes into play. <laughs> and that we ourselves, even 
and now we can debate this on the academic side is can we as players within these people systems also be qualified to research it with i i personally believe that, yeah we can be we can be so um, but i'm sure that's debatable in certain circles so i really do think mm -hmm. that um Everything that Evan said is pointing more and more toward really, I mean, the core of this, I mean, market research and the skill set behind it, A, can be learned and B, can be leveraged uh, for, for the and serve the purpose of creating thriving, hybrid, remote, whatever type of workplaces, but the kinds of cultures where both people in the business can thrive. So. Yeah. I hope that. Okay. No, it's my, it's to, my I turn. To, I remembered everything. I was trying to like get on all your points, Evan. It was so rich. Yeah. Well, well it's time for me to build on, on you again. Um, so one of the things you mentioned is that like when, when it's been declared by whomever that culture change needs to happen, the fundamental question is like, what does that actually mean? And what are you actually changing? And I do think like looking at those unmet needs, uh, is really important. But I think another thing that's important is understanding the like the formal and informal behaviors and interactions that are going on and the the momentum and the success of, of the things that have been developed organically and how that actually works. So um, when you talk about looking at the present, like it's a it's the present of like what we what we say we're doing and what we're doing in formal settings, but also the things that we're doing informally. And I think there's so much stuff going on right now with the pandemic, with the fact that like after two years, a lot of really established routines and established behaviors and established interactions have taken hold and are now um, kind of the accepted norm that you need to, before, before, before you disrupt again and say, everybody back to the office, you need mm -hmm. to look and say like, but what's, what's working now? I mean, at my company, Conifer Research, yes. we, um, I, I would have to look at the numbers, but I would say half of our company, we're a relatively small company, we're about 30 people, um, maybe not half, but, uh, but at least a third started work during the pandemic, which means all they know is... Yep pandemic conifer pandemic culture um and so the move tra transporting that back to the office um would be foolhardy without understanding what what the effect is going to be and i it's not just us like we know um we know that there's been the great resignation but there's also been the great hiring what there has been is a lot of movement um the great I resignation, I think. The great, they're yours to lose. <laughs> movement. Right, right. Uh, 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 the great, the great reshuffling, the great rethinking, the great reflection. But, but yeah. really, it, it's about um, there's a level of movement that's gone on that is relatively unprecedented in the recent past. But that also means that there are people, a lot of people in the U.S. who are, and in Canada and everywhere, who are. Um, who've only known culture as a pandemic phenomenon wherever they are. And so really understanding the, what is working about that um, and what not what may not be recognized as a um, ACME practice um, because, because the, the other thing is we've, it's also, 
anthropology is a reflexive exercise, right? We look at ourselves and, and we look at what we're doing and what we're studying and how, and also how people look at their sel- themselves and how they reflect back and understand their own cultures. And I think it's really important to look at how are people understanding the pandemic? And I think what a lot of people are doing and a lot of companies are doing is they're putting brackets around it as if it's something that um, when, when we look back decades from now is can, can be removed out of time uh, and, and somehow like dismissed as aberrant. But that's not true. It's something we've all experienced. And therefore, like, we need to, um, part of understanding the context is understanding how we are thinking about uh, pandemic work and how we're thinking about our current and future pandemic work behaviors, um, because that's part of the context with which we're going to go forward. Yeah, and it is our new, this is the new starting point, right? And mm-hmm. so that's uh, the analogy I use in my work is it's like a GPS. You know, how do you know how to get there unless you know where you're starting and where you're going, right? And so that's why getting that first step of understanding the present and not just like collecting the data, it's the insights that's important because if you don't have the insights, those insights are the things that are going to shift our thinking and it's going to change our interventions, okay? It's going to change our strategy. It's going to change our planning. It's going to change our... Uh, implementation. It's going to change the way we even sustain it. So I'm just, I'm just trying to think through while you were talking, Evan, uh, is like, what are the insights that, that we can offer in this conversation that'll tell people what I, what I mean by that? And that is, um, this is a favor I put in the book. I'm overpaid for what I do, but underpaid for what I could do. Mm-hmm. Doesn't that speak mm-hmm. volumes? And so this is an organization and Evan knows this one. Of, uh, how do we do talent management? Right. Or um, I just came off of something that, you know, we realized um, it was a DEI initiative. And, and of course, um, taking a cultural look at what what was sustaining the current challenges. Just because I'm included doesn't mean like I feel I belong. So if an organization was taking all their efforts into inclusion and and but our research told us, hey, I do feel included. The problem is not inclusion. It's the belonging piece. So the fact that we did that research and got the insights means that we have an intervention that we know is going to be relevant and impactful than if we didn't do the research up front. Right. right. So there's so, so much there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think Karen has kind of yeah. mapped out like um, probably the bulk of the next two sections that we want to talk <laughs> about, which is like what 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 uh, putting insights I didn't aside, mean like to what. Do that. <laughs> Um, no, I think it's a natural I, segment. I'm I, for I, I think I think uh, I think Tolstoy would appreciate your foreshadowing. Um, <laughs> going back to him, so uh, so first there are the, the 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 data collection, right? What are you actually capturing? And then there's the however you want to call it the the activation and engagement with that with that data. Um, which includes insights, but also includes ownership, which is a big part of a big part of it. And I think because the people acting on the data are also the people, the people acting on the insights are the people who are going to be affected by the insights. Unlike very often, if I'm if I'm studying uh, soft drink consumption, um, that's a very different beast because the people acting on it, uh, the people. Um, who are going to act on the insights are not going to be nearly as affected. So with the with yeah. the the collection of the data, you know, obviously 
I'm going to stump for anthropology and an ethnographic approach. And the reason I'm going to do that is because anthropology is by its nature holistic. So it's going to combine things like interviews and observation and an understanding of space and a focus on communication and uh, mapping social roles and mapping, um, you know, life trajectories. I've referred to them like their career, their career paths, but really they're, they, they bear a very similar relationship to, to the way we think about life trajectories and you go through stages. I mean, we say things like late career and stuff like that. Um, mm. And we're, we're attuned to all these things and the, and the signs and symbolism that go on, go along with how the space is created, how people interact. Um, and by being holistic, getting back to that foreground background thing, um, culture is something hard to articulate. The definition of it is hard to articulate as demonstrated in minute one of this interview, but also like <laughs> what it really is that com comprises that culture is hard to articulate. If you went into an organization and ask what is your culture you're gonna get values that are that are you know uh that are everyone's uh maybe screen background and that are painted in the lobby but you're not going to get really mm -hmm. the experienced dynamic nature of it um yeah, you're getting the so, culture yeah right um and yeah. and what you what you what an ethnographic approach does is takes all of that information looks at it holistically and is able to tease out the things that are tacit and unarticulatable um, and and foreground them and make them like make them uh, data that you can really look at. The second part is which is a fun part, I think both for Karen and I to talk about, is that co-creative piece. Is is the idea that you need to give um, your employees, a team who's responsible for leading this initiative, um, the the space to work, and, and space is it might be physical, but it's also um, temporal. They need the time to do it. Yeah. It's it's psychological and it's political. Like you know, it's mm -hmm. it's all of those things. You need to give them that space. Mm -hmm. You need to give um, a and remove the barriers. <laughs> remove the barriers and barriers are a whole other podcast because uh, because those those barriers are can be access um they can be um uh dissuasive or coercive factors which may not even be on purpose but basically you need to be able to tell the boss what's wrong and you need to be able to like say it as bluntly as possible you also need to be like one of the barriers is um secrecy like you need to be as transparent as possible. So one of the things, like one of the things that Conifer does, is we will go. Let's say we're going to do research for a couple of weeks at an office to understand. We'll interview people. We'll observe. We'll just kind of hang out and figure out what's going on. Um, and we will start to do early analysis on some of the key themes, pain points, interactions, and then. We, we usually are given a room to work in, and then we will essentially uh, have an open house, and we will just have out our our half-formed ideas, which are usually on like big post-it notes that we just put up on the wall, and invite people to come in and critique us, which does two things. It helps to validate, or like if we're getting something totally wrong, um, which hopefully doesn't happen, we can get that feedback, but also, 
um, it's data in itself in how people react to having a mirror reflected to them. And then we you start to see like how people are re- going to respond when you start to activate that work, um, which is where the co-creation comes in. And I think I'm going to just throw the ball over to Karen, who, who is uh, more than happy to talk about the, the kinds of co-creative processes you can bring in to that work to make sure that folks have, um, they have ownership. They have a huge stake in this. Like people, People don't want to work in crappy workplaces. Uh, like, I, I don't know how to be more blunt than that. In point. Um, there, there's your there's your quote for the episode. People don't want to work in crappy workplaces. Yep, yep. <laughs> Definitely need to clip that and put it in social media. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's a winner there, uh, Evan. So, and I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, and and what we're I think what what um, and we talked about this before we started recording, but. Uh, even though these are the starting points we're talking about, um, it's also the engagement part from the very, very beginning, right? So when you're when you're asking yep. people for that critique, you're engaging them. How would you like to see this? What what where are the friction points? Um, where is this accurate or not accurate? And by by virtue of doing that, you are starting to co-create even in the research phase of the work. There is a co-creation stage, but. This is all about weaving the uh, experience and um, the co-creation together, right? So, and, and there's, I'm highly influenced by Appreciative Inquiry, which, which talks about um, using the whole systems, right? Using all the ingenuity that comes within the whole systems to be able to uh, inspire people to envision um, that shared future together, one that's based on what's inspirational, um, as well as what's based on the strengths, right? As opposed to we're really good at, you know, pointing out what's wrong, aren't we? We're, that's what we're trained to do. But we haven't been trained yep. on how to make it right, okay? And and so co-creation processes um, engage people and leverages um, their, like, their, in, their talents, right? So that's why the work I do not only builds capability, it uses capability and engages people throughout, so... Nice. Yeah, I think even speaking on our behalf at Incitrix, um, we recently moved our headquarters into a new space uh, with a focus on a hybrid environment. And all of these things are ringing true in both the good and the bad. But I do find it interesting that um, even from the get-go, Incitrix really took it upon themselves to make sure that both transparency and, and collaboration was a big part of even deciding if we wanted to move, let alone you know, coming up with a really, um, you know, key workspace that was um, built for for everyone. Like we got everyone's input and, and thus the space came to be. But what I did appreciate for the first year in uh, 2020 was that uh, we essentially the facilities management team at Incitrix, which I mean, for lack of a better term, is just the folks that really kind of focused on hopefully, you know, supporting the culture to some degree, especially during the move. But um, we really focused on doing, um, you know, just even simple surveys every month just to check in with the employees, but then also building on them to some degree. So that whole, you know, you know, what would our office look like in a perfect world? So what we did end up finding, which I thought was quite interesting, is that, you know, the folks that maybe even two to three years ago that might have had their, you know, even their own opinion on flexible work or remote working or even being hybrid as a business, uh, were, were some of the first people to actually um, 
really uh, get behind hybrid working and then also completely shift how they do their own uh, work, which I thought was interesting. Um, I've always been an advocate for remote work. So <laughs> the pandemic kind of naturally fell into, you know, how I do things. But it was really interesting to see a lot of folks who maybe were in a little bit more of the traditional uh, mindset when it comes to, you know, a workplace culture. Because again, I think a lot of that has to do with, you even mentioned the whole, you know, going around the water cooler and, and maybe discussing about, you know, last night, Saturday's game, because you both cheer for the same team. Like a lot of that is lost. But I know for, for us, we're really looking at ways and how we can continue to, to keep that going. So I think you guys really kind of made that my personal experience come to forefront. And now I'm thinking, yeah, like what I got a couple of ideas I'm going to take. So, take so. I, I think it's important <laughs> to ask why do people, I mean, uh, I, I think it, yeah. I think no matter what the context is, it's important to ask why. Um, in some ways, uh, anthropologists are like two-year-olds. They just want to know why, 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 why. Um, but I think in this case, there's a lot to be learned about why people are preferring one one mode or another. And this is not to say you have to give every, everybody everything they want. But I think, um, yes. I, I think, Karen, I think you brought up before that like sometimes if you're just going to willy-nilly be like, this is what we need to do, you're going to get the reaction from folks which is like, this makes no sense. This is this is a, a knee-jerk reaction that that is like cobbled together and and it doesn't like it doesn't work for anybody, let alone me. Um, but I think if you understand why um, and you implement something transparently and fairly, um, you're going to, you're going to get a, a positive reception. Um, but also it's, yeah. it's been interesting in, at Conifer is I'm also like one of the people responsible for hiring. So I've been bringing on people and, and naturally talking about like what their expectations were. And it's been interesting to see like who, who is the most excited about remote work or in-person work and when and why. Cause I think naturally you say like, Oh, younger people, they love their technology. Um, those kids today, they just want to be remote work. And that's not really the case. Um, <laughs> I think there are a lot of people who appreciate that, but I think that um, our, our younger employees crave the social interaction. Um, they also recognize the benefits of sort of learning by osmosis and informally working next to someone. Then there's the like older, it's interesting the the, the older longer term employees are often um, much more um, sort of uh, extreme in their, in, in their stance. Like, yes, we have to get back to the office. It's the right way to do things or, you know, eh, we never need to be at the office again. And I think, you know, I personally have been torn, one, as an employee of a company, but two, as someone who is in leadership at that company. And as an employee, I love working remotely. Um, I, I, you know, I like the space I've built out, although it's giving me a horrible, like, chiaroscuro, like, contrast going on here. Uh, you kind of shifted. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, I'm totally washed out um, in shadow. Um, I, I don't know. It's a it's a half cloudy, half sunny day in beautiful Chicago, Illinois. What can I tell you? Um, 
So like, I, but I also recognize as, as the director of a company that um, there, there's a real need and there is, there is professional development and cultural benefits to being there together. Like people do benefit from sharing space. They don't need to share that space all the time. Um, and uh, there's a lot of ways to share virtual spaces that are really powerful, but it needs to make sense for who you are. And you, there has to be a why of how you're doing it, um, which I think is the moral of the story, right? Like, don't, 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 don't go don't off half cocked. Yes. Right, right. Don't, don't, uh, do it. don't check the box. I hate that. Yeah. yeah. Do it meaningfully <laughs> and have that why down for sure. Um, and speaking as a less extroverted person, I mean, people still need people. Um, and, mm -hmm. yes. and, and so that's, that's what you're talking about, Evan. But from my perspective, the future of work is not hybrid or remote. The future of work is choice. All right. So it's, it's about making sure people have the opportunity to have the autonomy to do their jobs the best way they know how or that they can under the best working conditions so that you mm -hmm. get the best out of them. And that includes cultivating relationships and capabilities, making sure the learning is there, all that good stuff. And so it, it's just it's something that organizations um, should think about every day, but they don't. Right. And then then the, therein lies the problem. You see that the paying attention, which I think what we in the work that we do, that's that's what we're doing. When we're trying to articulate the culture. We're paying attention. What is the real culture? Right. So, um, so I have a question for Karen now. Um, oh, because sure. <laughs> well, so their choice and input are two related things. They both have to do with sort of like agency and ownership of, of a decision. And I'm wondering as you're working with your clients, are they making that fine distinction? Do they understand that like, they, they might just say we're, we're yeah. Because you might just say like, oh, we're empowering the workers, which is another like. No, uh, no. And I mean, it's, that's an extreme side. Right, right. Right. No, I hear you. It's a balance. And that's why co-creation is so important. What you're doing is bringing the organization closer together so that you can weave the future together. And no, you're absolutely right, Evan. That distinction is not always there. And I think, uh, and I'll say specifically, CEOs are learning it the hard way. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so, mm -hmm. and this question, I, and, and that's not unusual because honestly, I've asked this question of CEOs. Oh, you've gotten to the pinnacle of career. What do you still have to learn? And not all of them can answer that question, right? And so um, it's, it's really important for organizations to understand that it is the co-creation piece. When we talk about criteria, it's not just employee criteria. There's business criteria as well, right? <laughs> and what you're trying to do is... To, like mm -hmm. the interventions or the strategies that are going to give you the best of both sets of criteria, right? And so um, you're right. It's not. I'm not promoting uh, all of a sudden give the keys to you know everybody. There's lots of room for leadership in co-creation, still, but it's got to be done in a way that has that 360 view or that understanding of the complexities. And we're far too simplistic when it comes to our interventions when it comes with people these days right we again we know the answers the work, hard work's not being done and so you know i say this to leaders all the time what's the harm in talking with your people oh we have the survey what's wrong with asking them what they well, think? Uh, that, yeah i mean this is 
They're scared of the answers. Perhaps. Let's be honest. Um, <laughs> then or, they have or a the burden of knowledge, right? And accountability. Absolutely. Or or or, the, or they will wave away the answers uh, because, like your your question hubris. about like what do you what what exactly hubris and humility was what I immediately thought about when you said right. you asked the question these questions of the the CEOs because if you can't answer that you are devoid of humility. And it's going to be the the harm of you talking to your employees is they are going to recognize that, and they're either they're either um, going to not be honest in their interactions with you, uh, <laughs> or or you might respond negatively publicly, um, which is an even bigger that disaster. Right. But I think the aim of those conversations is not just the conversations, because you're right, maybe the starting points are not always knowable. The aim of that work, um, and especially with co-creation and the employee research that happens before that, is empathy, right? We talk about that mm -hmm. all the time with design thinking. So it, once you get your building toward that empathy, then, then we have something to work with. But you're absolutely right. We hear about this in the press, all these listening sessions, so to speak, that go sideways because they become complaining sessions. And it's, I partly mm -hmm. believe that they're not, they're not facilitated in a way that gets them the result that they want. They just, so there's something to be said of, you know, bringing some expertise into the room and, and trying to make sure you're managing the conversation. So you're right. And this is good. I'm so glad that we're having like the three of us talk because what we're doing here is build, we're, we're building on very complex topics, mm -hmm. but being able to point out these aspects of it is really hopefully balancing out uh, the the perspective uh, for those that are hopefully listening as a fly in the wall here. <laughs> right. Do, do you want? <laughs> I can. Do, do you want to go the, down the rabbit hole of organizational empathy, or is that too big a? Oh, is that too big a? You can go all afternoon now. <laughs> well, I, I, I will give my one. Uh, one thought about yeah, put it, I would love and, to hear and, it. And in market research, um, I have often had clients um, treat empathy as something you could be knighted or baptized into. Like you cross the what? threshold. So, so let me explain. Like okay. um, <laughs> you, you, that um, you have empathy, but for the consumer, by the by virtue of the simple fact that you've gone into their home and been in a space with them and and by crossing that threshold like i now ordain you empathetic leader go forth and innovate um <laughs> and, and so in order to in order to, to you know empathy also needs to be like fed and watered uh, much like relationships and so empathy is much like culture a practice and so i think having having a session where a ceo talks to like really talks to their employees um once you're very very likely to have it be a, a complaint session if they make it a regular practice and they show you know they yeah. they, yeah. they put aside it's the relationship yeah it's not yeah. a transaction anymore Right, and they put aside some of the the actual trappings of hubris that come with um, only staying in in the the executive suites, and and maybe somebody just 
spots you walking through the lobby as you're whisked away, whisked away, but that you, you practice this listening and practice these interactions and, and practice being in the same space um, and seeing how people work, you start to develop that sense. And I think also when you empower people to undertake an initiative to um, to look at your culture, to understand it with a critical eye and make um, informed decisions about how to steer it in one direction or another. It has much more credibility because the folks who are told that they have ownership of that process, the folks that are told they have input in that process, which should be broad, um, feel that that's done um, genuinely. And I think like, and it's, you know, a big part of culture is also how, how trust is confirmed, like conferred and confirmed uh, and, and, um, and reinforced through interactions. Um, so that's my meandering, but still bounded uh, empathy uh, diversion. I may have a practical example. Sure. If you don't mind, Karen, let me jump in. Um, yeah, I, I, it's funny because, again, this kind of um, just it pulls me back into my personal experience. But when we were setting up this hybrid work environment, um, it was interesting in that we were always working in an open space. Again, another buzz trend from God knows seven, eight years ago. Uh, and we, we all know who that, how that turned out. But uh, ironically, even with the whole hybrid working, we, we moved to hot desking, right? So that's the whole, you're not allowed to leave your space, um, you know, your stuff on your space. It's once you leave, you leave. You can uh, book out any area of the office and away you go. But what's interesting about that is we actually have uh, all of our leadership follows the same rules, including the CFO, uh, the CEO, uh, everybody. So we all hot desk. And even today, I, I mean, I was sitting right beside the, the CEO as she worked. So there's a lot of transparency and just kind of having a side by side with those types of leaders. Another point actually to make even within our own environment. Um, and again, I know we're talking about these, these environments aren't the things that lead culture, but I'm really wow. happy that we were thinking about this ahead. Yeah. Right. But even the room that I'm in actually isn't a full off or a full room. We actually have the, the glass only goes up half way because we are trying to keep a transparent environment that there's no there's no place that you can be in the office where you can't hear everybody else so all conversations are had on the floor um, which I think is kind of interesting so even in you know um, a meeting that might be more important to some folks there is that level of understanding that even then and there um, there's transparency to be had so I thought that was worth sharing because I think that really plays off of Evan's point where it really to me sounds like a lot of that has to be really practice and people have to see these leaders actually take part in it um, and not just encourage it. So. Well, I think it's important you bring in the physical space as well. I mean, that is a part of the experience. They are part of cultural artifacts to use the uh, terminology Evan right. used earlier. I mean, they all work in concert with one another. That physical space is communicating cultural messages, Mm -hmm. Right. That's what you just Love explained it. to us and in a great example. And I'm going to put a plug in for the video that your company made, um, because I think <laughs> it's really important. We keep talking about hybrid work and everyone's focused on the remote piece. But the physical yeah. environment yeah. is also just as important. We know we are influenced. Um, our senses are influenced by our physical environments. Mm -hmm. And so I think it is important to bring that point. Thank you, Sade. 
And then with what Evan was saying earlier, I mean, this is not, we're not getting into too much of a leadership podcast. But that's not my intent. But when we talk about empathy, I think, I think, and I wish there was more done to connect that with EQ um, around leadership. You know, leaders need followers. They kind of sometimes forget that. <laughs> and, and that's something that's, um, that's granted to them by others. And, and um, influence, it, influence has so much to do with relationships. So when I do some of the executive coaching, they're like, oh, and I say, you know, what do you want to work on? And it's like, I want to increase my influence. Well, take a look at the relationships around them, and then they can understand uh, what mechanisms are influencing. So like you tie this all in and you say, okay, these are happening on a scale that, that, that actually becomes culture. These are all the patterns, right, that happen in everyday interactions that express the culture. So I just thought I'd kind of connect all the dots there because, I mean, every time both of you talk, I'm kind of like my synapses are firing away. Yeah. So. I mean, it, in, influence <laughs> itself is culturally determined, right? Um, Absolutely. Yeah. They're determined by they're determined by the the nature of the hierarchies and political relationships that are in an organization. They are um, they are determined by um, what what are the symbols and that are valued? Um, mm -hmm. They are, <clears throat> they are, a, you know, is a certain personality characteristic prize, the people who have those personality characteristics, you know, is, is it, is it output? It, you know, so with, um, you know, in a sales organization, the sales numbers might, might be the thing in uh, a consulting organization, like for better or worse, like, being charismatic can be really helpful because you need to convey ideas and you need to you need you need to be persuasive. Um, in in other organizations, it can like simply be like recognition from above if it's really really hierarchical as opposed to recognition laterally. Um, you know, there's a there, 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 yeah. Evan, as a woman of color, I am keenly aware of that. Yes, I um, keenly aware. Uh, and, <laughs> Yeah, and I think and I think that's uh, what's really interesting that you. It's important that you bring that up because what is going on with a lot of the the DEI initiatives is that those are hopefully changing the way that um, like influence is um, plays out in organizations and, and the kinds of the way relationships are formed and, and what the markings of something that is worth following um, are, are manifest. So, well, yeah, I think two things have happened and I, and I, I started out EEO in affirmative action 20 years ago mm -hmm. um, is that the field as speaking as a practitioner, the field has matured. There's a lot more, um, complexity and knowledge that has been built over these years, which is great. And second, I think the other thing that's going on in organizations is that the realization, we saw this with George Floyd, the realization is that, you know, we are, we are a part of society. So these companies can't shut out, you know, indefinitely what's going on on the outside, because what's going on in the outside is going on in the inside too, right? And so I think these, yeah. these things are working in um, they're, they're, they're 
they're working in confluence with one another. I don't know if it's late in the day, so I don't know if I'm using the right terminology here, but they're all coming together and they're forming these systems. And the important piece is, are we paying attention? You know, are we are we being intentional about it? Are we building the right connections and the me- meaningful relationships so that we can kind of drive forward progress? And I think I, probably in the present company, we would all agree it's a very imperfect pro- process right now, right? We're in a place that very imperfect. And I think I don't mean to overly simplify it, but there's some basics that are not being done. And, and that is the empathy piece, the paying attention piece, the collaborating and meaningful connection. But I love how this is kind of naturally leading us into the next segment. Uh, and that's how businesses can go about gauging what their work culture may look like. So uh, Karen, your your book is wonderful, uh, Culture Your Culture, Innovating Experiences at Work. And it really touches on how organizational culture is an untapped asset. And potentially, we mentioned a liability for businesses. Yet we're kind of talking about how a lot of folks may not know how to manage their culture with proficiency. Uh, I know your book touches really uh, well on this. And knowing that, um, you know, why don't you share with our listeners what the origin may be of the design of the workplace framework and how this concept is helping businesses dig deeper, challenge boundaries, surface new ideas, and potentially support how corporate decisions or organizational cultural decisions are being implemented? Yeah, thanks. Um, this book, really, and Evan's known me a long time, um, so he's kind of seen this journey. Uh, this book was born really out of a frustration with how often we raise culture as this huge factor. I mean, and we talked about the news headlines earlier, right? It, you, they always point to culture, <laughs> always. <laughs> and then we have all these, all this stuff out there that talks about, yeah, that's a good culture or that's a bad culture. And there was nothing, and then there might be archetypes, right? So there might be archetypes, there might be clues or hints, or these are things you can do, but there was nothing that actually built the capability of cultivating culture, managing it. So really this framework, which is a design of work experience, which you know, is, was really meant to provide a step-by-step how-to for intentionally creating culture on the front end, as opposed to remedially, let's just say, right? Um, so it's, it's really meant to kind of fill what I saw as a gap. Not only that, I mean, this is work that I do. There's far more work to be done than what one person can do. I, I literally gave everything away in this book because I feel it's very important to empower organizations um, to be able to leverage culture as that asset that we talked about earlier. So what it does is it takes a deep understanding of an organization's unique context and allows them to intentionally co-design that aspirational future with both business and people in mind, right? And so, um, yep. and I know you have the, the image of the framework, but there's four main components. Um, it's the combination of design and change processes enabled by leveraging and building capability and engagement throughout. So that's, that's the four main okay. components. Now, as we've already, um, demonstrated in this conversation is that culture is complex work and it needs to be explored in digestible focused parts. And so I I really don't want to oversimplify, um, you know, this because this framework is better lived than spoken or read about, to be honest. Um, Sounds like just like culture. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Great point. So there, so when I say it needs to be put into digestible pieces, there's five phases. There's understand, which we've been talking a lot about that first phase when we talk about ethnographies, 
Um, the second phase is create and learn. The third is decide. And then the fourth is plan. And the fifth is implement. So you see so many organizations skip steps and they go from problem to solution and they miss a lot you know, along the way. And so all of these are organized as a series of iterative learning loops, each with its own specific set of activities. And, and therefore you're always focusing on the present. It's whatever's in front of you at the moment. And what, what Dewey does, that's what I call it for short, is that it yields an in-depth understanding of the current state. It provides a design for the future state and a roadmap and the action plans to get there. So that's really something that I hope and I, I desire to contribute um, to, to the benefit of better workplaces and better work experiences. Because believe me, every time I hear the stories, and I do, my heart breaks for people. Like, why do we, why are we willing to accept less than ideal workplaces? And why are we willing to not live up to our own full potentials as individuals and as organizations? And we're, we're our own worst enemies. And so I, I think equipping us to be able to break some of those cultural patterns, so to speak, right, allows us to um, disrupt and hopefully create a different future. So one of my favorite quotes is that you're perfectly designed for your current results. I got that from David Cooper Ryder of Appreciative Inquiry. And so if you want different results, you have to do different things, right? Um, so that's mm-hmm. that's really what I'm hoping to do is, is to help disrupt that in the good way. Yeah. I love that. And I think even in, in the later aspects of our conversation, we were exploring elements of, of the later stage activities within uh, Dewey. And any more insight maybe you'd like to add on the thinking of this and, and how maybe does the, the change process of the design of framework experience allow maybe businesses to consider uh, certain types of insights while planning and implementing decisions? I know we kind of touched on it a little bit. but Yeah, I mean, I think the key part is that you know, you, you know, this people-centered design piece is something that, A, doesn't always happen, but then you have to pair that with the change processes. And, and, and organizations today, they're, they're often managed separately when they shouldn't be, right? So that all I'm doing, is, I didn't make this stuff up. I'm building upon you know, <laughs> decades and decades of, of research and understanding about organization. And I'm curating and bringing the pieces together um, to make sure that you know we're getting different results, so so that's that's the important piece. Is like you can have the, like I said earlier, best design, right? If you don't implement it, it's the same thing with innovation, right? Um, it's great to have discovery, right? But innovation has to be adopted, right, to have the impact. Again, that's I know people debate that point all the time, um, but but I think it's important that the people aspect is incorporated into it. So when organizations are saying you know, hey, we have an intimidating business problem or challenge. They don't always think about, well, what do we need to make sure people can be aligned with that strategy for the results that we're hoping for, right? That's, they're just shoving it down people's throats, right? Are they not? And it doesn't work. Packing it up with a nice little bowl, putting it on a PDF and and handing it so that you sign uh, once you read it, maybe. I remember those days. Gone are the days of the printed PDFs. Now they're just downloadables on your internet. So no, just kidding. But um, I do love that aspect. And I think that's a really interesting point. Uh, Even the fact that, uh, you know, organizations need to know about their workplace culture um, to the extent that 
how am I, what am I trying to say here? Um, it's not a fake it till you make it because I think that's what a lot of businesses may be doing <laughs> is that again, you know, and, and I'm not using us as an example, but what if, you know, what if we were to build this wonderful hybrid environment uh, and then just let everyone loose, just give them the wild, wild west and no, not actually really uh, nurture the environment so that, you know, folks were actually utilizing it the best that uh, it could be. We're, we're, we're experiencing some nuances of that because we got a lot of new technology as well. So even though we may feel like we we did a really good job as a facility management team to uh, tackle those culture uh, nuances at Insitrix, we are still every day, um, you know, running into uh, problem-based scenarios where, you know, sometimes it's the pandemic, sometimes it's our own, um, you know, internal thinking where a lot of the times we're having to kind of readdress what we're yeah, doing. Yeah, but like stuff, readdressing so. it almost in real time and not letting it stew. Yes. Right? Because better exactly perform better like i just don't and so even those companies they're like well what about those companies that you know are are really doing well and they have a crappy culture a they don't last forever that way (laughs) it's not sustainable but b think about what they're leaving on the table right Yep. And talent management, as you said, is a big thing. And I think I can, um, even within my young career, uh, see within a lot of folks that I know within my own network during the pandemic, how that's changed, how they see uh, their own career, um, their their environment's very important to them. So, And they're willing to yeah. speak on it. Yeah. I like that I, you I, use the word yeah. career and not job. Yeah. I think that you can't, you can't fake it to your make it is really important here because you have, you, you have to, it's more like, uh, remake it until you remake it until you remake it until you remake it. Like it's, Ooh, I like that. uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's I, good. it's cause it's the, the other thing is, um, Karen, you bracketing is really not a great approach to anything. And I think when you talked about how, um, this kind of work is uh, the implementation of this kind of work is kind of like done elsewhere. Like how, how there's a siloing or a di- like a division of labor that doesn't allow this holistic approach. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think that happens, um, that happens institutionally where you have like, this is your responsibility, but it also happens temporally where you're just like, here's an initiative and it's done. And this is an initiative that is never done. And I think the, um, the design of work experience is really in some ways what human resources should involve into. Um, and, and, and it should be, (laughs) and it should be thought of as a, a, a porous department or, or like where there's, where, you know, it's not this thing over there that that gets involved with with uh, legal stuff and bureaucracy. That it that it's much more about sort of development and and nurturing a culture and making sure that people stay involved in this process. Because the other thing is, which if if people take away nothing from this, what I want them to take away is like this <laughs> this is not going to be. Uh, a simple bounded solution and initiative that just gets done and then everybody runs off into the golden future where we all have wonderful workplace experiences. <laughs> this is something that companies are going to get, if not wrong, more likely half right. Um, it is going to be incremental and it, it gets back to this idea that culture is practice and culture is 
Um, culture is behavior and culture and culture is dynamic and culture needs to be lived because if you think that you're just going to fix this once and like this is not to say that you need outside consultants like like myself or karen in there for the rest of your lives we don't like we don't need to we don't need to put a sleeping bag under one of the desks and live there forever <laughs> that's not what we need to do uh, i thought that was ethnography in um, Evan, so. at some point you come back from the field at some point, you 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 roll up your sleeping bag and you come back home and you and you have to sit down and and <laughs> and, and write your your ethnography, um, but but what it is is like it's it's creating a, a better process which mm-hmm. is you know by its nature open to change, and by its nature inquisitive and by its nature um, humble that knowing everything ain't gonna happen so. Uh, why don't you accept that and and be open to the possibility that things That's are right. going to to evolve? Um, yeah, and and I think it's, yeah, I'm glad you brought in HR. I actually conducted a recent interview about my thoughts around the future of HR, so I'm happy to share the link if that's of interest. Absolutely, absolutely. So, yeah. but Evan, I mean, I think you're you you hit the nail on the head there. I love yeah. it. So I, I think we're we're wrapping up, and and those are really great um, final thoughts. I might pose one last question for you both. Um, you know, we keep talking about culture being at the heart of the way companies think about decision making, um, and the way that they should implement those decisions. Um, we keep talking about the nuances of employee research and, and how businesses can do it. But if, if where's a good place to start if, if a business is interested in maybe um, looking into their organizational culture? So I have some thoughts on that, if, if I can jump in. Yeah, go first. <laughs> um, and I write about this in the book about on-ramps and off-ramps. Um, I get a lot of when's the right time to start. This never, there's never, I never it. a bad time. Okay, yeah. let me just start by saying that, right? Um, I, I Early on in the pandemic, same thing. It's kind of like, oh, we're going to yeah. wait till we're yeah. back in the office and do our culture work. Again, it's still happening, right? So um, some starting points, if, if it helps people out there. You know, you can start with an intimidating business problem or challenge um, where you need people to succeed. Um, you can go into specific needs within a function or an organization any aspect of the employee life cycle can be designed as an experience with culture in mind. Any sort of people interactions, we've touched upon so many in this conversation. Um, even building organizational capability. How do we, example, how do we become more innovative? Guess what? It's, yeah, there's some skill in that, but it's also the culture people, right? Um, or any identified priorities. Every organization should have a set of priorities and that's a wonderful starting point for your culture. So it's all about, you know, what kind of culture is needed in order for us to do this, right? Or how, how do we make sure people are um, excited, engaged, inspired, um, and how do we do amazing things together, right? So those are some starting points. But um, I, I'll give you another David Cooper writer uh, quote, which is, our worlds are formed by the questions we ask. And so the moment you begin questioning the current state, that's when change starts to happen, right? So I encourage all of you to take a step back and start um, putting on those traveler's eyes, as they say in design thinking, and start asking some questions because you never know what you're going to discover. 
Mm-hmm. As they say, or well, as I say, the world changes and research yeah. listens. Oh, so I like that. Yep. I'm going to write that down. Yeah. So, so, so I'm going to, I'm going to make that quote my own because I, I think, um, I think our worlds are often comprised of the meaning we share. And I think one of the ways to like, as you start to think about like, what in, what in my culture do I want to change? Often the question should really be what in, what, what in my culture works? And I'll give you a very, yes, like seemingly like small, insignificant example from Conifer. So Conifer, like, like every other company got hit really hard um, in, in March of 2020. Um, we, we, wrapped up the projects we were able to wrap up. There were a few winding down and then everything else ground to a halt. Uh, yes. And, you know, it's hard to remember back that far because it feels like the world has changed 15 times in the last, you know, uh, now coming on 23, 24 months. Um, but we were, we, we were very concerned about our, like, our culture and what it felt like to work at Conifer. We were highly collaborative. We're a small office. Um, you know, everybody I think is, if not friends, friendly with everybody else. We work together really closely. We're a very flat hierarchy. Um, we also kind of geek out about, because a lot of us are anthropologists, we geek out about sort of the things that make Conifer Conifer. The, and one of the things that makes Conifer Conifer is we we have a very uh, we have a ritual which every Thursday at three o'clock the office manager comes around with chocolate. It's Chocolate Thursday, and this and, and it's and it's not it's not one of these traditions where the like the company buying the foosball table for everybody to play at. It was actually a very organic tradition. And it started when one of my former colleagues ran afoul of our former director of design. And he just, he really just pissed her off. And he showed up with a bunch of like chocolate, chocolate muffins one Thursday, <laughs> um, which are effectively frostingless cupcakes. And we were all in early and she was like, what'd you do? And he's like, what are you talking about? She's like, what, what's with these? What did you do? And all his re reaction was, what are you talking about? It's Chocolate Thursday. And that was his way of, even though everybody knew that he got in trouble. And, and after that, a few of us would go out and get some chocolate. And eventually, the company adopted it. And so what we decided, because we, we understand that rights and rituals are really important, as leadership, we're like, look, we're not going to go under based on whether we send chocolate to everybody at their houses. Like that's not going to be what makes or breaks us, but it may be the thing that kind of holds us together. Feels like we're still working together in a certain way, even though we are manifestly not working together in a certain way. And we still periodically send, you know, we'll send, you know, every couple of months, two months worth of chocolate Thursday chocolate to every employee. Um, and also it's become really important as people have been onboarded during the pandemic. Like here it is, here's a, here's a, here's a ritual that is, that is, you know, cause culture is also about continuity. It's about tradition. Um, and it's about, you know, feeling like you have ownership of what's going on by being part of those traditions. And so mm -hmm. I'm not saying that every company should like 
have something equivalent to that, but look at it, look at what the shared meaning is that helps build people's worlds and use those Mm -hmm. as anchors to push the kind of culture you want to have forward. Now you just, someone took my fish feeding. Oh, sorry. I was going to say someone took my fish feeding duties at Insight <laughs> here when we moved office locations. And let me tell you, that was a hard moment. Right. But, <laughs> but, but you have to, you, you have to, uh, uh, instill someone else with that, so with, with that, res- with that responsibility. That's a, that's a passing of a church and that's the movement to a new, yeah. a new status, a new social role. Those are important too. But yeah, well, yeah, yeah. And I and I don't think they got it. But at the same time, I really let them know that I really enjoyed it. And yeah, so I think what yeah. both of you have expressed uh, just now and, and through this conversation um, is something that I saw, Evan, you took me back to March of 2020. <laughs> um, is, You're welcome. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, what I observed from a cultural standpoint is what what this shift that happened in March of 2020, what it did was exposed the cultures that were already there. So the companies Mm -hmm. that had great cultures, this pandemic gave them an opportunity to demonstrate why they're great. That's what you're just saying, Evan. You talked about the ritual, right? And um, conversely, those that were troubled to begin with really struggled, right? And, And I think that part of it is contributing to this great resignation for that reason. And so I really think that I hope through this conversation, we've convinced some people about the importance of culture and how important it is to not only people, but the business as well. So, but I, I just love hearing about your experience. I mean, would you, I push back on me if you don't agree with this, but I'm curious. Yeah, I um, we also, one of the other kinds of methods we use is deprivation research, uh, which is you have things that are part of people's routines. You take out a peak, key part of those routines. Like Saturday, what, the fish. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, that's a good example. And then you see how people respond to this thing that was always there to the point where people didn't really think about it. Um, mm-hmm. How do people respond to that? How do, what do you do to fill that hole? And what deprivation research does is it moves a part of the background into the foreground so that you Um, You have to address it, but you can do it in creative ways and you can change positively. And the pandemic has been a giant global deprivation research experiment. And and I think, think, as you were saying, it has foregrounded some of the best parts of our our, like individual um, organizational, but just sort of general cultures and and also foregrounded some of the not so good ones. And I, I think that's given us an opportunity to sort of reflect and engage and act um, in a really hopefully positive way uh, as, as long as Absolutely. we do it sort of openly and, and, and with that kind of like curiosity and humility and engagement. That change transformation, right? I think we're really starting to experience mm-hmm. what that may look like specifically from an organizational culture perspective. So it's a great point. So, I mean, I think we we landed where we needed to go. So I want to thank, obviously, both our guests today, uh, both Karen and Evan, for joining us on such a thought-provoking topic. I think this is something we could probably sit here and talk about all evening. Uh, but I know for more information, we got a lot of it here because there's lots of stuff that we actually unpacked today. Uh, but for any information on the framework, the method 
methodologies that we discuss in today's episode, uh, please visit, visit the podcast player uh, on the website podcast.insightrix.com. We'll have all the links within the description and everything that you learned today. Uh, to learn more about Karen and the Dewey framework, visit the website or pick up Culture Your Culture Innovating Experiences at Work on Amazon. And again, a link will be provided in the description. To learn more about Evan, ethnography, and he touched on it very little, the deprivation research done at Conifer, uh, visit their website, which I will also link below. And again, if you enjoyed today's topic, topic it's been a day, uh, give us a like, share, or subscribe on any favorite podcast player. And don't forget to leave us a review if you learned anything new. So until next time. Thanks for having us. Fun. Yes. Take care. Awesome. Bye. Bye.